eating with Jesus. Mark chapter 2, and we'll be looking, starting from verse 13. But before we do that, um, I want you to think about something which I imagine all of you have been through at some point in your life. Have you ever been in a position where you've been unwell and the sickness has gone on to the point, particularly for us guys, where it actually becomes intolerable and you have to go and visit the doctors? Which I know for some people it is harder than others. Um, we've lived in our current house for about two years now, just over two years, and I finally got round to going to our doctors for the first time um, the other week. And going to the doctors, it seems wherever you live in England, you have the same experience when you go to the doctors. First of all, you've got to book an appointment. So you have to phone up the surgery and you have to speak to the gatekeepers, which they call receptionists, but I think they have other roles in mind. And they are like, they are, they are like the keepers of, the, of the, medic, the medics, you know, we can't get, we've got to get through them first. So you have to phone up and you have to go through the rigmarole of either a sit and wait clinic, which basically is an eternity, that's just another way of saying eternity, or you get an appointment. But what you have to do is you have to justify your illness to the voice on the phone. You say, I'd like to see the doctor. And they say, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> well, I want to talk to a doctor about that. I said, no, you've got to tell us what's wrong with you. So I have to tell the doctor, I tell the gatekeeper what's wrong with me. And they say, right, fine, you can come and have the appointment. So you then turn up into the surgery and you go into a small, very warm room full of sick people. And, and you just, you kind of have to find a seat and sit there and then you have to wait. And I don't know how long you've waited for a doctor's appointment. Who hands up who's waited longer than they said? Yeah, I've been through that one. doesn't happen everywhere, but I've, I've been through that one. And then you sit there and you read, you look around and think, well, I'm bored. What do I do? Let's look at the magazines. And guarantee the magazines are invariably out of date, usually by a decade or two. So I pick up one of the magazines and I'm flicking through and while I'm waiting, I'm okay, fine. And I do the quiz in the magazine. I find out I do put men before my career. I'm just going to say that. Um, so I, I'm going through that, and I also know, know how to make a really good Christmas cake um, because the recipe was in there. So I go through that, and then finally <coughs> you do that, and you're waiting, and then you realize that there are people around you who are very sick. Some of them are coughing. Some of them have suspicious rashes on, and you suddenly find that some of them are scratching. Have you noticed when you're in the waiting room, someone's doing this or this, you suddenly find yourself doing it as well. There's nothing wrong with me in that department, but I'm scratching as well. And then finally, when all that's gone on and you've waited eternity and you feel like you've actually caught more diseases than you had when you came in, you finally get to see the doctor. And they call your name and they say, Mr. Crane, would you go to room number whatever, three? So I go to room number three and you knock on the door and the doctor comes in. And the question is, why do you put yourself through that? Why do we put ourselves, the reason we put ourselves through that is because there's something wrong with us and we need to go and find someone who knows what they're talking about. Someone who has access to the medicine, to the drugs, who can help us, who can tell us, who can look in our ears, look in our throat, take our heart rate and tell us what's wrong. And so we go, all that, go through all that trouble just to find someone who can help us because we're sick. And what we're going to be looking at today is a similar thing. It's about knowing whether you're sick. And Jesus had an incident in his life, recorded here in the book of Mark, about sickness and doctors. And I want to read it to you, and we're going to have a little look about what it means to be sick and to be well today. So if you found Mark chapter 2, go to verse 13, short passage. And it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. This is Jesus. And he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he rose and he followed him and as he reclined at table in his house many tax collectors and sinners 
were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisee, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, today's big idea is you come to the doctor when you know you're sick. You come to the doctor when you know you're sick. Let's have a little look at this passage. Jesus is out doing what he's doing going about his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. He's been teaching and preaching. Crowds come to him. And as he's going along the shore, he sees someone. He sees a man named Levi. This is the record. This is the same guy. Commentators tell us as Matthew, who becomes one of the 12 disciples and writer of the gospel called Matthew. Um, But Mark uses his other name, Levi, in this account. So it's the same guy. And he is sitting at his tax collector's booth, and Jesus issues him a very simple command. Two words in our Bible, it says there, follow me. And we don't know what Levi's done up to this point. We don't know if he's been hearing about Jesus, whether he knows about the buzz on social media or on the news or in the newspaper. He's heard about this preacher who's coming around, performing miracles, doing stuff. We don't know what's come up before. But at that moment, at that point, while he's sitting doing his job, His day-to-day work, his ordinary life, Jesus comes into his life, issues him a simple command, you, Levi, follow me. And what does Levi do? It says very simply, he rose and followed him. And we've got to point out here, the act of following Jesus as written in the Gospels is not just a case of following someone out the door. If there was a fire drill here and I said, follow me out the door, you'd all follow me. It's not a case of that. It's actually something deeper and more. And this whole idea of being a follower of Jesus occurs multiple times in Mark's Gospels. And it's referring to disciples of Jesus. People who not only make an intellectual assent of actually, well, it's Jesus. Look, he's a teacher. It's actually someone who commits their life, their heart, and their decisions and gets everything behind him. They leave what is behind and they change the direction of their life to follow Jesus. And it's displayed here by, uh, by Levi getting up, leaving his work, and going after Jesus. And if we look at other characters in the gospel, the other disciples, uh, the, the fishermen left their nets, and they followed Jesus. So what Levi is doing, what we see here is a transformation. One commentator put it like this. Following is an act that involves risk and cost. It is something one does, not simply what one thinks or believes. So there's more than just a mental ascent. Levi is putting his faith and trust in Jesus and following him. Now, we have to just... I reference one thing here, and that's um, Levi's job. He was a tax collector. Now, you may have heard a bit about tax collectors, and it's probably all true. Tax collectors, they would have been there um, on the edge of the district called Capernaum, in the area they were. And what he would have done is he would be collecting taxes from people who crossed the borders between the territories and um, taking, taking kind of a cut on their goods and things. And the way it worked was tax collectors would bid for the rights to collect taxes. So they would make a tender to the, to, to the, the Romans or someone and say, right, we'll, we'll, we'll offer this contract and we'll raise this much money in taxes. And the Romans say, fine, you can go and do that. But then what they would do, because they're sharp thieves, is they would then just collect more. And whatever they collected more, as long as they paid what was due 
to the authorities above them, they would get to keep. So actually, it encouraged dishonest business practice, and it attracted the kind of people who were greedy, uh, had no scruples, and were willing to steal from others. Okay? And as a result of this, it was a hated um, occupation. Uh, what would our equivalent be? We don't, there's lots of occupations we don't like, you know, parking ticket attendants, you know, traffic wardens. This was way worse than them, kind of on the par of, you know, drug dealers and people like that. So they were hated in society. They were seen as collaborators, collaborating with the Romans who were occupying. They were seen as merciless and vicious and just exploiting people who may not have had much money. So they were considered thieves. So they were collaborating with the Romans or they were working for Herod, uh, who was ruling part of the area, and he was seen as very cruel. They would have been shunned by um, other good observant Jews, because they'd have been Jews themselves, but they wouldn't have been observant. They, they would have been uh, excommunicated from the synagogue, so they wouldn't have been allowed to go to worship. Uh, their friends... Uh, and family would shun them, so they would be wealthy, but actually they wouldn't have any kind of friends or close social network because all those people would have left them. They would have had to hang out with other people like them because they're the only people who would have sec- um, um, accepted them. They were lumped together with thieves and murderers. That was a kind of standard they were put on. That's where they were. Uh, there was rabbinic teaching at the time which says um, for a good observant Jew was allowed to lie to a tax collector, contrary to the law of Moses, because they were considered so bad, so worth it. You're allowed to lie to them, the teachers would say, the rabbis would say. You can get away with that because they're, they're so crooked, it kind of, it doesn't matter. God won't mind if you lie to them. That's how poorly they were thought of. And Um, This is the man Jesus calls. Jesus says of all the people there who would have been around, there was a guy at the booth, there would have been others there paying their taxes, Jesus picked Levi. And if we look back in in, in Mark's Gospel, in the previous previous passage, we have um, a story of Jesus healing a leper. Lepers were considered unclean, so were tax collectors, incidentally. Jesus healed the the leper. He was um, made clean. Jesus now calls um, a tax collector. But the interesting thing between the two is a leper didn't choose his position. He contracted leprosy. It wasn't his decision. Matthew, uh, Levi, or Matthew, he chose his occupation. So he willingly chose to get into what he was doing. And as a result, he was considered unclean. So Jesus calls him. Matthew, Levi, puts everything aside and goes to follow him. And then we kick the story on in the next verse. And it says, they're now having food together. Jesus is at his house and Levi's invited all his mates. All his mates who are also thieves and crooks as well, other tax collectors and this general kind of sinners group. They're all there together. And so people who might have been in there would have been gamblers, money lenders, people who traded on the Sabbath, thieves, violent men, even shepherds were all considered unclean, all considered outcasts, and they were all there. And so they've come together. So Jesus is not only hanging out with Levi, he's hanging out with all his mates who would have been as bad as him. As bad as him. So he's hanging out with all these kind of reprobates, people outside the nice edges of society, and there he is meeting them. And Jesus seems to be fine with that. He seems to be having a good time in the meal, enjoying himself, hanging out with them. Um, Interestingly, Jewish um, dietary laws was actually meant to provide exclusion. 
The reason they ate some things and didn't eat something was to provide that separation between us and those who are unclean, Gentiles, people outside it. Jesus seems to just walk straight across that and say, I'm coming to your house, I'm going to have dinner with you and all your friends. And Levi's brought them all and they're all sitting um, and eating together. And it says the scribes of the Pharisees. These were the religious ones. These are the ones who are very observant, followed the law. These were the good guys. They noticed this problem. And so they wanted to point it out to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, Jesus, don't know if you realize this. <laughs> let, me, let me bring you aside. Let me correct you. Why are you eating with these people? Why are you eating with this type of people? You may not have noticed, but all the guests at dinner and the house you've gone into is full of unclean people who we shouldn't associate, especially not good observant Jews who know the law. They shouldn't be associating with those kind of people. And Jesus responds to that. And he actually says, he actually has this, this fascinating thing. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus clearly identifies the problem here. He's saying, actually, these guys are not well. These guys are sick. These guys need a doctor. These guys, so I'm going to go to them. He says, I'm not come to call the righteous, or those who think they're righteous, I've come to call sinners. And the irony is, where would you expect to find a saviour among those who need saving? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's right there in the middle of a bunch of sinners, people who are far outside God's covenant community, and actually he's there loving them and being with them and hoping to pull them into him. And I want to look at three things that we can learn from this short but powerful story. Our title is Eating with Jesus. I want to do three things along those lines. First thing, eating with Jesus shows the radical nature of grace. Eating with Jesus shows the radical nature of grace. Jesus' actions towards Levi and his friends show amazing grace. For a rabbi, for a teacher to go and hang out with someone so despised, someone who's such an outcast, shows phenomenal amounts of grace. Jesus acknowledged him, called him, recognized him, picked him out, and then doesn't just pick him out, but said, I want you to come and follow me. And we, we, we pan it forward. We know that Levi becomes one of the 12. And if we read through the rest of the New Testament, we see the privileged place of the 12 in Scripture. But Jesus doesn't just like acknowledge him and call him out. He ate with him. And eating with someone, uh, as we go through kind of the culture and we look at the, the biblical culture, eating with someone was a sign of intimacy and acceptance. If you're going to sit down and share a meal with someone... It showed, it showed a, a massive kind of step of what you're going to do and how you valued their relationship. And Jesus says, I'm going to come and eat with you. I'm going to come to your house. And it says, he was, it says the phrase was, he was reclining at table. He was at a place of ease and comfort. And I know for us, even in this day and age, when we eat with people, when we're willing to bring them into our home, so it, it says something. They're actually eating our food. We're providing for them. We're talking to them. There are people you're happy to have into your home to eat. And I bet there are people who you're not happy to have at home in your eat. You're probably thinking of them now. Don't look around because you might catch someone's eye and they might think you think them. <laughs> Don't want that. But there are people, like we'd all say, there are people, yeah, I'm happy to have you in my home. I like you. We get on. We're friends. And rather than actually, I'll, I'll get the local reprobate who steals from people. I'll get that person into my home. But Jesus says, actually, no, I want to be known, know you. I want to get to know you. And one of those actually is his disciples. He said, you're now a follower. I want you to come and I want to get to know you. So Jesus is loving and accepting of these people. It doesn't actually say, interestingly, 
in the text, he actually demands any life change from any of the guests. Does he? He's asked Matthew, Levi, to follow him. But everyone else at the party, he doesn't, he ha- there's been no demand on Jesus to repent at all at this point. He has called them in and he is loving them and spending time with them. And the reality is this, this shouldn't have happened. Levi wasn't worthy. Any good Jew would have told you that. He wasn't worthy. He was unclean. He was an outcast, an outcast to all except Jesus. And this begs a question, how can someone like that... Someone sick, to use the picture that Jesus used, come and eat with Jesus. And the answer is Jesus made him well. When Jesus called him, he made him well. And this wasn't dependent on Levi, on his character or his actions, because if we observe his character and actions, they were appalling. They would condemn him. They were bad. It's dependent on Jesus and his love and his character and his grace. And the reality is we're all dependent on the love and the grace of God. The grace of God meaning unmerited favor. Jesus saw his sin. Jesus saw what he had done. And he still wanted relationship with him. He was still willing to call him out of his situation and say, I want relationship with you. And what does this mean for us? Well, if you're a believer here, you're Levi. If you're a believer here, you're Levi. I'm Levi. We were outcasts from God's kingdom. We were sick, to use that, that kind of image there. If we look at other images in the New Testament, it says we were enemies of God. We were by nature objects of wrath. We were outside. God was holy and good and right and clean, and we were everything that that isn't. We were sinful. We were evil. We were outcasts. We were unclean before him, yet... We have been called to eat with Jesus. We have been called to eat with Jesus. This is an amazing privilege. This is something that we should be excited about. This is the heart of the Christian message, that people who are sinners can come and eat with a holy God. That God has called us out of our mess and our dirt and said, I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to have relationship with you. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want you to follow me. I have good things for you, which is exactly what happened to Levi. And so my question for us today, if you're a believer here, do you eat with Jesus? Do you spend time with Jesus? Because we've all been called. We've all had that moment where God called our name and said, come, follow me. But my question is, as believers... In the life we live, are we taking advantage of this wonderful privilege? Or are we too busy? Or is there too many other things kind of coming in on our lives? Because we have this opportunity to have a relationship with God himself through Christ. And are we investing in that? It's something that is priority and important to us. For Levi, it transformed his entire life. No longer was he the tax collector. He was now, he's now known as Matthew, the evangelist, writer of the gospel, the one whose, whose word we have now, 2,000 years later, what he saw, what he wrote down, his story. Is there. And I, I encourage you guys, what are you doing to invest in your relationship with Jesus? How is that going? Take an honest assessment of your time now. How is your time in reading God's word? How is your time in prayer? 
And this isn't something I'm saying to contemn you. This is something to encourage you and say, this is a privilege we have. We don't deserve it, yet we've been called wonderfully to it. Second thing. Eating with Jesus is for those who know they are not worthy. Jesus clearly calls those who are sick, which includes us all. Yet there are those who didn't think they needed Jesus. Who were the characters from the stories who thought they were better than that? That's not a trick question. The scribes, yeah, the scribes from the story. They, the interesting thing about the scribes were, if you put it in our vernacular, the scribes were church-going, Bible-reading people, good people, nice people, people you would like to have round to your house, you would like to hang out with, because they were good and right and upwards, and you kind of knew what you got with them. They were good guys. They would have been praying and they'd have been doing those things. But actually, they saw themselves as too good for God. Levi knew he was too bad for God. He was too far gone. He knew what he was doing was evil and wrong. These guys thought they were too good for God. And the danger for us in church is that you can almost have that mentality. If I do things, if I do enough things, I know I'm going to be okay. If I come to church, if I go to life group, if I'm praying, if I'm involved in this team or that team, and I'm generally being a good person, I love my wife or or husband, and I'm raising my kids well, and I do a job, you think, I can be okay. But the reality is, that does not how it works. This didn't work for the scribes. Even if you're not a believer here, you can still have that same mindset that if you do things, you can earn approval. You can be involved in politics or community action or social action or just trying to live a good life. I don't do that. I don't do what that guy does. Oh, he's really bad. No, I don't do that. We can self-justify. We can say we're okay for God. And the reality is that's not the way it works. The word here is humility. Levi knew who he was before God. So when Jesus came and called his name, he knew he had to go. He knew he was in a situation where he had to go and give himself to Jesus. And as unbelievers, before we became Christians, we were sinners before a holy God. And we had to admit that. That's what it means to become a Christian. Admit that you have failed. Admit that you have fallen short of the glory of God, it says. Admit that we've got things wrong. Admit that we cannot save ourselves no matter what we do. We're too far away. And then we put our faith and trust in Christ. And that's a hard thing to do. In this day and age, actually admit you're wrong. It's amazing how many things go wrong and people kind of don't, can't even admit. Almost everything is acceptable nowadays, have you noticed? Have you seen the, um, the news article about the, um, the website that got hacked, Ashley Madison? That's a website for people who want affairs. And the, the fuss is that it got hacked, which is a crime, yeah, I know. But it's a website for people who want to have affairs. You think there's something foundationally morally wrong with that. Let alone they got hacked, which is quite funny. But still, that's still a crime. Um, but it's hard to admit, actually, when we do wrong. People actually to apologize and say, that is wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. That is right. But even as uh, believers now, we have this position. We were sinners. We were objects of wrath. We were outside God's kingdoms. But now we're inside God's kingdom. We have been saved. But this is not of our own doing. It's not because we were good or right. You were not a good catch for Jesus. Jesus did a good job saving me. He needed me on his team. I bring things that he just needed for his church and his kingdom. No, no, no. That's not how he works. Jesus saved you because you needed saving. And the only thing you brought to the relationship was your sin. (laughs) 
but he loved you and he saved you, which causes means we need to live lives of humble repentance. And our kind of question for us today is, how do you see yourself before God? Do you live a life of humble joy? Humble because you know what you've been saved from, you know where you were, and joyful because you now know what you've been saved into. And that's wonderful. And actually, we live lives of repentance. How do we look at others? Do we look at some people and say they are just too far away from God? I've got friends like that. People I know, people in my family, I just think, God, <laughs> they're just like, they're so far the other way. They're so far gone. The reality is God can save anyone. God can call anyone in that. Do we live joyful lives of actually just enjoying the grace of God? Or are we still living in this life of trying to earn it? If I do these things, God will love me. God will accept me. He won't any more than he's already done you now. You are already loved and you are already accepted. We're called to be humble people who, who know that everything we've received in Christ is not of our own doing, yet to enjoy it wonderfully anyway today. Last one. Eating with Jesus points towards a future feast. A future feast. The, the, the meal that G, Levi um, shared with Jesus will one day be shared by all believers of all time, all in one place. Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride had made herself ready. It was granted to clothe herself with fine living, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, the, are these the true words of God? The image of a marriage supper is throughout the gospel. Many of Jesus' parables contain it. And here is just a, a foreshadowing of a hint. There is a day coming when we will see God face to face. When we will one day enjoy that kind of supper with him when everything is wrapped up and there'll be no more suffering and no more tears and no more crying and all believers, those who put their faith and trust in will be with him forever. And that is something wonderful to look forward to. And everybody sitting at that table will not be worthy to be there. But they will all be there rejoicing in the wonderful grace of God and giving glory and praise to Jesus forever and ever. And that is a wonderful thing. And that's something we can enjoy now. We can enjoy the foretaste of that. We can enjoy knowing that hope that is in us, that is strong and secure, that one day we will be with him forever. We will see him face to face. In a moment, we're going to share bread and wine together. And that's just part of that. Jesus said when he did that, he said, actually, do this, do this until my kingdom comes again. Isn't it? Keep doing this in remembrance of me. Until one day we're going to do this face to face and there'll be one almighty um, party, which I am very much looking forward to you. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to share some bread and wine together. And I'd love us to do three things while we do this. I'd love us, firstly, I'd like us to look back. I'd like us to look back. I'd like you to reflect back over your own life and reflect back at what God saved you from. I don't know when you became a Christian. I was in my early 20s. I knew the life I was leading and I knew the mess it was in. And God saved me out of that. And I want you to reflect back on your life and reflect back about what God has saved you from. Also looking back, we can look back at the cross that made it all possible. Reflect back on our life, reflect back that God saved us out of it and we can give praise to that. I want us to look to the present right here, right now, his current sustaining power that is available to each one of us. 
to live this life, to enjoy what he's done, to be fruitful in his kingdom, to be recipients of his wonderful grace. And I'd love us to look to the future, to what is to come. So actually what we do now is merely a foreshadow, a, a foretaste of something bigger, better and brighter that is going to come. And this is just something we're doing in the meantime as we wait for that glorious day um, together. Is that clear? Just bow your head. Let me just pray and then I'll ask some people to come and serve us um, some bread and wine. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you came. Lord, we want to thank you that you came to this earth, Lord. Thank you you came to be a saviour. Lord God, we thank you that you save each and every one of us, Lord Jesus. We thank you that those who called on your name have been saved, that we, like Levi, have been called to follow you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross that made that all possible, your resurrection from the dead that just vindicated who you were and what you were doing. Lord God, we thank you that you rose into heaven and are seated now in glory and will one day come again to take us to be with you, Lord God. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come fill us now as your people to live lives of humble joy where we are just aware of who we are and what we come from, but so joyful and so amazed at what you've done in each of our lives, Lord Jesus. It is just stunning to be reminded of it again. Lord, we thank you that you are a good and faithful God. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay.